Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do come to you this morning and we are so thankful for forgiveness that you do not hold our sins against us through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. This is something we ask that we would never take for granted. <clears throat> I pray that it be the, the motivation of our lives. But I pray that you would use our time in your word this morning to give us a single-minded devotion to Christ and his kingdom. I pray, Lord, that it would work towards setting our affections on things above, not on things on the earth, and we need your help in this. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to meditate together well on this passage, that your truth would ring loud, and that our hearts would be conformed to those things that please you. And so, Lord, we ask this for your glory and our extreme joy. Amen. Do you love King Jesus? That is the question that we've been asking ourselves this year when I've had occasion to preach. Uh, I think it's a question that should never tire our ears. It's one that we can't afford not to ask. Do you, do I, do we truly love Jesus preeminently, zealously, supremely? And we can't afford not to ask that question because as we learned in Revelation 2 that if a church ceases to love Jesus Christ firstly, preeminently, then they cease to be a church. We could teach true things. Uh, we could remain unstained by the world. But if we abandon the love we had at first, then we will have failed. We could still gather and do church and do it well from certain matrices. But our gatherings would be something other than a true church. A love for Jesus Christ then is essential. Uh, we could say it's at the heart of Christianity, and it is uh, the essential and central burning motivation for righteous living for all true Christians. The Christian life starts right here. Love for Jesus Christ is a reactionary love. We see this in 1 John and many other places. It's a love that responds to God's love for us first in and through Christ. So love for Christ is the natural response to the forgiveness that we sang this morning that we know is available in and through the gospel message, the good news. The good news is the truth that Christ died in our place for our sins. Uh, he hung on the cross taking the penalty that we deserve for our sins. And those who truly believe this are forgiven. In response to that, they love. And so to help us to love, we're going to look at an example of forgiveness and responsive love in the Gospels. And so we're going to take a, a, a brief glimpse at the life of Peter. We're going to look at Peter's failures, Peter's forgiveness, Christ's fame, Peter's faithfulness, and our following. And that'll be our rough outline. And as we do that, we're going to see how Jesus is the merciful, sovereign king who pours out grace on his people. Uh, the forgiveness that is available in and through this gracious king gives his people every right and every powerful motivation to love him and to follow him zealously. So if you would like, go ahead and turn with me to John 21. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 19. 
In chapter 19, John records the details of Christ's crucifixion and burial. Then chapter 20 is dedicated to Christ's resurrection and his first two appearances to the disciples. And after the second appearance, it was Thomas who cried out, if you remember, my Lord and my God. So all of this has just happened in our narrative. And now here in chapter 21, Peter and six other disciples decide to go fishing on the Sea of Tiberias, which also called the Sea of Galilee. They fish throughout the night, catch nothing. At daybreak, someone from the shore tells them to, to cast their nets on the right side of the boat, and they comply. And would you believe it? They caught this large amount of fish, 153 to be exact. Peter connects the dots and discerns that this mysterious fish whisperer is none other than Jesus. And so with classic Peter impetuousness, he dives in the sea and swims to the shore to be with Jesus, leaving the other six to manage the rest of the fishing enterprise by themselves. But eventually they all end up on the shore, eating breakfast with Jesus around a charcoal fire. So that is the scene. Then in verse 15 we read, When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Now, before we take a deeper look at this text, we need to briefly consider all that has happened in Peter's life prior to this third appearance. And and really what I'm getting at is that we need to consider Peter's failures, and they are grievous. But if you remember... Peter's career as a disciple started off with with great hope. Peter is the one who walked on water with Jesus. He is the one who first proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. And then after many of the other disciples had abandoned Jesus, Jesus asked, do you want to go away as well? And it was Peter who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's Peter. There's so much in Peter's disciple resume that is commendable. But then, like some sort of first century prize fighter, he keeps making these really bold but really bad predictions. And so shortly after the feet washing, after Jesus gave the new commandment to love one another, we learn in John 13, 36, how Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And then if we went over to Matthew, in Matthew 26, 33, Jesus announced that they all, all the disciples would fall away from him. But Peter said, Though they, and really I think he's saying, though, they, though these other jokers all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter initially responded with what we might categorize as courage. He, he drew his sword and he was going to, we would think, single-handedly take on the entire Roman Empire himself. He was also the one who one of the few who risked following Jesus to the high priest's courtyard. And if you didn't know the rest of the story, you think that he might make good on his boasts. But this is where his courage ends. A servant girl at the door of the high priest's courtyard challenged Peter and said in chapter 18, verse 17, 
you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I am not. And then again, while he was warming himself by the charcoal fire, someone said again, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it a second time and said, I am not. Then in verse 26, we read, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it a third time. And at once a rooster crowed. This is a catastrophic failure. Uh, an absolute grievous failure. Instead of heeding Jesus' warning in humility that, that he would fall away, Peter arrogantly denies it. Jesus here doesn't know what he's talking about. The Lord's warnings didn't diminish Peter's ego uh, one bit, and so his former boasts make his fall all the more heinous. In the end, we can kind of summarize and, and, and say that Peter failed to tell the truth about himself and about Jesus. He failed to proclaim accurately Christ's true value and, and extreme worth. He failed to love his neighbor in that he neglected to announce to this lost and, and needy world uh, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He failed to speak up for Jesus' innocence, left him to go through this ordeal by himself. Uh, in short, he failed to love Jesus. He failed to love him even as a friend. That's a humbling story. But I would suggest to you that it's not just Peter's story. It's our story. Even on this side of the cross, even with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, even after regeneration, after we have been given a new heart, one that, that is inclined to love what God loves and hate what God hates, even then we fail to tell the truth at times. Uh, we skip opportunities to proclaim the value of Jesus' person. We fail to defend his honor. In short, we fail to faithfully love Jesus. So if we're honest, our own story is just as humbling. So... The question remains, do, do we, do I, do you truly love Jesus? But Peter's massive failures make his forgiveness all the more amazing, all the more wonderful. And so after this colossal failure at one charcoal fire in chapter 18, we fast forward to another charcoal fire in chapter 21 where the outcome is much brighter. And so after breakfast around this fire, Jesus with the others present says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now earlier, as I mentioned in Matthew 26, 33, Peter said, though they, right, the other disciples, all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Essentially, Peter, I think, was saying that, that he loved Jesus more than the rest. He was the best disciple. He, he was better than those. And he, they might fall away, but, but he wasn't going to do that. And so now with the others present, it seems Jesus graciously and kindly, but also directly reminds Peter of his former boast. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these other disciples whom you formerly disparaged? It's a test for Peter. Uh, now, some say the word these here refers to these things, meaning uh, the fishing boat and the tackle, the whole fishing business. And, and so then people would teach that that's what Peter needed to leave behind. He wasn't supposed to be fishing, and so he's being chastised for that. Uh, the grammar uh, allows for that, these things, is, is general. But in light of Matthew 26, 
I think the point is clear. Do you love me more than these, meaning these other disciples whom you previously disparaged? I think that's the point. And Peter answered Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, so notice when he says that, he doesn't really answer the question, do you love me more than these? Peter's failure has humbled him now. Christ's death and resurrection has changed him. He's a different, he's a different man. Remember, Jesus has already appeared to the disciples twice by this point in our narrative. Lots has gone on in Peter's life over the last several days. Lots, like earth-shattering kinds of things, literally. And it's likely that Jesus has already had a private conversation with Peter about his failures. It's likely that, that Peter has already confessed his sin and so received forgiveness from Jesus. And the text seems to imply this. When, when Peter noticed that it was Jesus on the shore, as soon as he noticed, he jumps out of the boat, starts swimming to him. He, he wasn't trying to avoid Jesus. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't shrinking back in shame. So all those things didn't keep him from his king, which is contrary to Judas. It's actually contrary to, to Adam when he sinned in the garden as well. But it's contrary to Judas because, remember, Judas responded to his failures by turning from Jesus and hanging himself. And so by this point, Peter's already repented and received forgiveness. But since Peter's failure was public, so is his restoration. And back to my previous point, Peter is a changed man by now. He's humble. He's no longer comparing himself to the other disciples. He, he, he no longer sees ministry as, as an opportunity to play one-upmanship with the other disciples. And so he doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you more than these other jokers, more than these other guys. He simply says, yes, Lord, yes, Master, yes, King, you know that I love you. You know. No bold boasts and arrogant comparisons, just, just a humble appeal to the resurrected Christ's omniscience. You know. You know I love you. Now, what's different is that Jesus is exalted. It's not about, it's not about Peter and, and his performance. Jesus then said to him, feed my lambs. And so the affirmation of forgiveness and public restoration begins. And the early church really needed to hear this. Because why would anyone follow Peter's lead when he himself was such a colossal failure? Why would they... Follow him to death. And so Jesus does this in front of these seven. He makes it official. Peter is forgiven. The seven, including Peter. Peter is still an apostle. Even though he failed miserably, that hasn't changed. He is Christ's ambassador still, and he is given the privilege of shepherding Christ's flock. All that is still on the table, and this restoration affirms that. He is to feed Christ's lambs. Earlier on in John chapter 10, for example, Jesus likens his followers to sheep. So Peter is charged to feed, to teach God's word to these precious new believers, to lambs. In Acts 20, 28, we learn that believers are those for whom Christ shed his blood. They are highly prized by Jesus. Peter's failures were, were grievous, but his restoration far surpasses his failures. It's off the charts gracious. He has the privilege, the honor, 
to take care of those for whom Christ shed his blood. But then again, a second time, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter again answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus replied, tend my sheep. Then again, a third time, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. We could say, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, it appears Jesus' three questions and affirmation of restoration correspond to Peter's three failures or his three denials. And the text doesn't explicitly tell us this, but, but I believe that's why Peter is grieved. Because notice that it's, that's the third question that grieves him, which we can imagine would immediately bring Peter back to that other charcoal fire outside of the high priest's courtyard where, where Pete, Peter vehemently denied Christ. And it's right after that third one that the rooster crowed. Probably a, a pretty poignant reminder, and it would probably evoke some pretty strong emotions. So I believe that it's this memory that grieves Peter. And Jesus isn't being mean. He's Jesus. Forgiveness is specific. It's specific. As J. Adams notes, forgiveness never ignores sin or tolerates it. Rather, forgiveness is forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness focuses on the fact that there was an offense. It does not turn away from this fact, but deals with it. Right? So forgiveness deals with sin straight on. No, no beating around the bush, no sweeping things under the rug. And so then when forgiveness is granted, it's final, it's over, complete restoration. This is the Lord's kindness to Peter. Peter's slate is refreshingly clean. This is complete, absolute rec- reconciliation and restoration to his previous uh, promised privilege. To Peter's extreme joy. Now, many have taught this passage, and they make much to do about the different Greek words being used here uh, uh, for love. Jesus' first two questions use the Greek word agape, do you love me? The last one, phileo. And uh, that preaches well, but I don't think that it's accurate. Uh, And there are many reasons why I would say this, but probably the main reasons are that throughout John's gospel, agape and phileo, those two words are used interchangeably. So at times, Jesus phileo is the father, at other times, he agape is the father. And then, you know, one other one I would share with you, also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint or the LXX, uh, David's son, Amnon, loved Tamar, his half-sister, which was not exactly, if you know the story, not exactly an altruistic kind of love. And the love that those translators used in 250 B.C. in the Greek was agape. So I, I, I think the emphasis on these words is overblown, And ultimately, I think it distracts from the main point. And the main point is clear. Peter is graciously and publicly forgiven and restored to the extremely important ministry of shepherding God's people. And again, we see that Peter's response is void of that earlier cockiness. He trusts in Christ's omniscience. Jesus is the one raised from the dead. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the very Son of God. He knows all things. He knows that Peter does love him. Peter is at his mercy. And we see that Jesus doesn't disagree with Peter, but he goes on to affirm the relationship by entrusting uh, Peter with this important uh, shepherding ministry. Peter's sins were grievous, 
but his forgiveness and his restoration far surpass, again, his failures. And so we see the beauty of Psalm 32, 2, where it explains, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Peter is off the charts blessed, and, and so are we. And, uh, you know, there's certainly aspects of this passage that apply strictly to Peter and his unique ministry as, uh, in the early church as leader and apostle. But there's much here for us, and, and we need this. We need to see this forgiveness, and we need to see this restoration because, as I said before, Peter's failure is our failure. And if Peter can be forgiven, then we too can be forgiven. But I think that our Western culture is so saturated with this message and also so keen on the ideas of positive self-esteem and, and so forth that we take forgiveness for granted, if we're honest. We're a society that is consumed with its rights and with its privileges and what is owed us. And so I'm concerned uh, that we, in modern society, view forgiveness as an inalienable right. We would never vocalize this, I don't think, particularly in our circles, uh, but I, I, I wonder if it's really as if we think Christ owes us forgiveness. I've actually heard people say this to me in counseling. God's the one that brought me into this world. It's his fault. All this is his fault. The onus is on him. And so we think that, that Christ owes us a forgiveness. And so we come to this text, I'm afraid, sometimes with a sort of nonplussed indifference. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, there is no rational reason why we ought to think that way. Uh, there's no, no historical precedence for that belief. Uh, just consider some of the most powerful, influential leaders throughout history. Alexander the Great, Winston Churchill, Genghis Khan, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln, Adolf Hitler, Ronald Reagan, Cleopatra. We can go on, on down the list. Some of those good, some of those bad, some extremely wicked, some not so wicked. But none of them, to my knowledge, operated their rule and their reign by promoting those to high positions who had previously sold them out in their time of need. That's not how the human heart works. See, this is so otherworldly. Now, they might not all have been as equally harsh, but the kind of forgiveness that we see here is, is unprecedented. And so we need this. God's forgiveness of us through Christ is extraordinary. Right? It's extraordinary, absolutely amazing. It's breathtaking, and it was costly. But again, this text isn't about us. The Bible is what theologians call Christocentric, centered on Christ. It's about Christ and his glory. It's about his person and his work, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. And so naturally, we see Christ's fame on grand display here, and it is glorious. And here I just want to help us consider for a moment what we learn about Jesus in this text. Peter, in the midst of this touching conversation and meekness and in humility, simply without any sort of fanfare, announces that Jesus is God. And he does this when he says, Lord, you know everything. You know all things. You know that I love you. Peter assumes that the risen Christ knows everything. It's given. It's, it's almost an afterthought. Peter's not trying to make some sort of bold statement that one-ups uh, the other disciples. He's not trying to say this first and, and be the one to kind of showcase his knowledge. He's not looking for kudos. This is just reality. The, chrisen, the, the risen Christ knows all things. But in the Old Testament, only Yahweh knows all things. And we see that Jesus doesn't rebuke or correct Peter here because he assumes it as well. It's truth. 
This is just reality. Jesus does know all things, and so he knows that Peter indeed does love him. Peter doesn't have to, to, to go off and, and, and prove to him how after, all the things that he's done after his failures to prove that, that, he, that he loves Jesus. Uh, Jesus already knows. This is glorious. But we also learn about Jesus' sovereignty here, his rule as sovereign king. After forgiving and restoring Peter, Jesus describes how Peter will die, and then John comments this Jesus said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Talk more about this in a minute, but just consider uh, for the moment the reality that Jesus predicted how Peter would die. Jesus made this declaration sometime around 33 AD. We have it from fairly reliable sources that Peter was crucified around 66 AD, uh, 30 years later. And it's not just that Jesus predicted this event, but that he brought it about. Verse 19 explains that this was the kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Peter's death didn't take Jesus by surprise, uh, no more than his own death. Both events sovereignly ordained. Jesus is the sovereign king. He is the sovereign, omniscient king. But I think the greater point being made here that we learn here about Christ is that he is the merciful and gracious king. He is the king who forgives and restores. That's the surprising bit. Earlier I mentioned some other famous historical leaders, and I know how none of them forgave and restored like Christ. Uh, that's ordinary. What Christ does is extraordinary, extraordinary, supernatural. And I think that comparison is helpful, but you know, in some ways it's sacrilegious because Jesus in this all other category of glory all to himself. His glory and fame are in a class all to his own, which really makes his forgiveness and Peter's restoration here all the more surprising because the greater the person, the greater the sin that is committed against that person, the more heinous that it is. If a gang member, for example, tries to kill another gang member, that's wrong. It's terrible. It's bad. Uh, but if he tries to kill the president of the United States, for example, we can see that, that that's much worse. So this king the one who is the long way to Messiah foretold throughout the entire Old Testament that the promise, the one that fulfills the promise given to Abraham all the way back when, who is actually God in the flesh, this is the one that Peter sold out. So this king's forgiveness is really shocking and not something we ought to take for granted. And Peter is singled out here because of his denial and his leadership role in the early church, but we can't forget that all the other disciples deserted Christ the same. And all were equally forgiven. This ought to cause us to pause, and our hearts ought to just be pondering right now the unimaginable and surprising kindness of Christ. The long way to Messiah could have come as a Hitler and a Mussolini, something like that. He, he could have ruled with cruelty like Henry VIII. But as it turns out, he doesn't rule like that because that's not who he is. At his core, that is not who he is. At his core, he is a kind and merciful, gracious king. He is one who then mercifully forgives and graciously restores his people. This is wonderful. After... Christ's resurrection, Jesus told Mary Magdalene, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
Think of that in light of what I just said. Thomas Goodwin, the gentle, Christ-loving Puritan, has pointed out how Christ's first message to the disciples after his resurrection is one of forgiveness and restoration. He writes this, We would all think that as they would not know him in his sufferings, so he would now be as strange to them in his glory. But here is no such matter, for his first word concerning them is, Go tell my brethren. Isn't that precious? Jesus' first message was to affirm their relationship, even now, after their gross failures and their, their abandonment. Can you imagine how they must have been feeling? Jesus still calls them brothers. They still share the same father. This is amazing mercy, amazing kindness. There's no precedence for this kind of grace. To grant to enemies and sellouts brotherhood and a shared rule of the kingdom. That is crazy. Wonderfully crazy. And again, I think we too often miss this kind of thing because we take forgiveness for granted. We, we assume it is owed. And if you've been raised in the church, I think you're more susceptible to this maybe than at other people. You just kind of grew up knowing the gospel message. Jesus forgives. Yep, that's what he does. That is his job. If you ask, if you ask a five-year-old, they might even say that. Why, why is Jesus here? Oh, he's here to forgive me my sins. That's what he does. But the disciples deserve to be renounced. They disowned Christ in his time of need. Therefore, they deserve to be disowned in their time of need, and so do we. That's what's fair. Want to talk about fairness in our culture today? That's what's fair. Whatever the servant, ever the kind Savior, Jesus gives our comfort. He gives the disciples comfort. Top priority. He, he said this for them, for their sake. Go tell my brothers. He didn't want them to be wondering like, oh no, the Christ rose from the dead. Where does that put us with him? Go tell my brothers. Our king is a sovereign, omniscient king, but he's also the merciful king. He's worthy of our praise and worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our very lives. We owe him a life debt. We owe him a life debt. And so it's right and natural then that Jesus would go on and tell Peter in verse 18, Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, he said to Peter, follow me. It's natural for the risen Christ to say that to Peter, one who owes him a life debt. Follow me. In the first century, the description of having one's hands stretched out indicated crucifixion. And early witnesses confirmed that Peter was crucified in and around 66 AD, probably at the hands of Emperor Nero. Peter did glorify God in this way. And as we mentioned earlier in John 13, 36, Peter had this discussion with Jesus. Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And then Peter said to him, Lord, why cannot I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I believe our text here in chapter 21 is also a clear reference to this earlier interaction. Uh, Peter formally boasts that he would follow Jesus to the death, but he failed. But now Jesus gives Peter this this special privilege and assurance. 
he is granted the honor to give up his life for Christ and so glorify God in this way. He's going to get his chance to prove true on his word. And this is a huge privilege and honor. This secures the reality that the day is going to come when Peter is going to testify to the extreme value of Jesus Christ, his Lord and his King. And this time, this time around, he will not deny him. Again, this is God's kindness. Peter's going to get his chance. But in the meantime, for the next 30 years or so, Peter is to follow Christ. He's granted the privilege to follow him in his death, but also in his life. That term used here for following can refer to someone who's just following, someone who's walking, trail after, trail behind. But John's Gospel mostly uses this word to talk about discipleship. To talk about following Christ in a life of obedience to him as a Lord. And so Peter is blessed then with the privilege of being an example for all Christians. His life is to be a model to the sheep for all other believers. What's exactly the charge that Peter passed on to his fellow shepherds in 1 Peter 5.3, if you remember. Shepherds are supposed to be examples to the flock of what it looks like to follow Jesus. The congregation is supposed to be able to look to the shepherds of that flock, that church. I mean, they are the flock as well, but they're supposed to be to look at those under shepherds and go, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus in the flesh. That's a tangible expression. And so the charge to follow him is a charge that goes to all Christians. It goes to all Christians. Jesus' sheep hear his voice and follow him. And then this charge is more fully explained in Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? It looks like denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him, losing your life. And we see that's precisely what what Peter did. Not perfectly, but in general, that's what he did. Peter's life trajectory was a faithful response to Christ's love and forgiveness, and it is exemplary for the rest of us. Peter did love Jesus supremely to the end. In the book of Acts, for example, strengthened by the Spirit, Peter boldly witnessed to the excellencies of Jesus Christ. In Acts 2.38, he told the men of Israel, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In Acts 4, we learn that Peter and John were arrested for preaching and proclaiming the gospel uh, when it was a dangerous thing to do. And then in Acts 12, after James was killed uh, because of Christ, Peter was again put in prison and threatened with the same fate, but he was saved by an angel. His time had not yet come. The Lord had other immediate plans for Peter. But Peter's time eventually did come. And it's clear that this former sellout and traitor responded to forgiveness in a way that honored Christ his king and proved his love. J.C. Ryle, in his book, Practical Religion, notes how zeal in a man, right, this zealous love, this responsive love to Christ is so strong when it really reigns in a man that impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent and even to die. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. 
That describes Peter. Peter did follow Jesus. He denied himself in life, and he denied himself in death. His love for Christ was zealous, it was preeminent, and his life is exemplary for all of us. We too are to follow Jesus like Peter. Now in Revelation chapter 2, the church in Ephesus there had abandoned the love they had at first. They had ceased to love Jesus Christ supremely. And so Jesus rebuked them and told them to remember, repent, and do. And so if we take a soul inventory this morning and we realize our love for Christ has waned, if we realize that we have slipped in following him, then we too are to heed that warning. We're to remember. Remembering starts by beholding Christ as we've tried to do this morning. That, that was the point of the exercise this morning. To behold Christ in his glory. Uh, we're, con- we're to consider his amazing grace and mercy. His death was for us while we were yet sinners. In his resurrected life, he extended grace and mercy to those who committed high treason. He doesn't hold our sins against us. He doesn't remind us over and over and over again of our failures at every turn. Hey, remember that time you sold me out? That's not Jesus' interaction with Peter. And he's reconciled us to himself, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. This is also surprising, undeserved, unearned, but truly glorious. And if our love has grown cold, we're to go back and remember how in earlier days our our love for Jesus Christ was once red hot. There was a time when we, like Peter, zealously followed Christ. There was a, a time when we would read of Peter's life in the book of Acts and see how he responded to the gospel And we looked at that, and we too were willing and desires to sacrifice all for Christ's glory, to lay it all on the line. We we read the book of Acts, and there just kindled in us this fire that just screamed, "Ah, that's what I want. I want to live faithfully like that. I want the church, I want Christ and the gospel to be all that I'm living for. There was a time when we read Romans 8.1, and we learned how there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus And we read that text, and we understood that what it was saying, and we were overjoyed with love and thanksgiving. That truth was once fresh in our hearts, and it made us weep. It broke us. It softened us. So there was a time when our hearts were tender towards Jesus. And we wanted to tell everyone of the joys of forgiveness and the glories of Christ our King and how wonderful it is to have a relationship with him. We were forgiven, and so we were those who gladly and eagerly forgave. We were humble, and we were meek, and the power of Christ's undeserved love and forgiveness is what ruled us, what controlled us. There was a time when our hearts were overpowered uh, by forgiveness like Raymond Lowell. Raymond Lowell was teaching Arabic in Europe at the age of 70, when he decided he wanted to return to North Africa as a missionary. I love that. Samuel Zimmer described it this way. His pupils and friends naturally desired that that he should end his days in the peaceful pursuit of learning and the comfort of companionship. Such, however, was not Lowell's wish. His ambition was to die as a missionary and not as a teacher of philosophy. Lowell's own motto was, he that lives by the life cannot die. 
In Lowell's contemplations, we read, men are wont to die, O Lord, from old age, the failure of natural warmth and excess cold. But thus, if it be thy will, thy servant would not wish to die in this way. He would prefer to die in the glow of love, even as thou was willing to die for him. And that's what he did. <clears throat> One day he was preaching the gospel in, in North Africa, left his teaching post, went to North Africa at the age of 70, preaching the gospel there, and the crowd, filled with fanatic fury at his boldness and unable to reply to his arguments, seized him and dragged him out of the town. He was stoned to death on the 30th of June, 1315. See, so those who have been forgiven much love much. Remember that was Luke 18 we studied. Those who have been forgiven much love much. They love and they forgive. They love Jesus Christ and so they follow him sacrificially, zealously, passionately. And they love and forgive other people who suffer from the same sin problem. They've received grace and so they easily extend grace to others. Love begets love. Forgiveness begets forgiveness. Grace begets grace. That's how it works. So if our love has grown cold, if we realize that we're having a hard time loving other people, if we're having a hard time forgiving other people who have sinned against us, if we're having a hard time extending grace and mercy to those who have wounded us, it's an indicator that our love has grown cold. And so if, our, if we recognize that, if our love has grown cold, we need to go back and remember. And if our love has grown cold, we need to repent. We need to confess the sin of cold love towards such a kind and gracious and merciful Savior and King and so turn. Turn from that, that cold love and ask the Lord to increase our zeal for him. Ask him to, to help us to look with fresh eyes on the gospel and on Christ's person and his work. Help us to put away the things that are distracting us, that are pulling us away and help us to fixate once again and to treasure and cherish above all other earthly treasures our relationship with him. And then we're to do the works we did at first. Jesus said in John 10 that his sheep hear his voice and follow him. The charge Jesus gave Peter is the same charge for us. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. Christianity is simple. We complicate it. Follow Christ. The heart of every true believer reads about denying self and sacrificial service to our king and, and zealous love for Christ and says yes and amen. They read of Peter's zeal in the book of Acts and they want that and they grieve when they don't live that. And so if you've been forgiven, then love Jesus Christ zealously. Follow him. Don't delay. Pick up your cross and follow him Today, persevere in that with the Spirit's strength, zealous to the end. Be willing to suffer for his namesake. Deny yourself. Stop living for your own glory and your own pleasure and your own agenda and live once again for Christ's glory, Christ's pleasure and his agenda. And trust that living for Christ is the center of your joy. And so you can say along with Hudson Taylor, when he said at the end of his life, how are you able to make all these sacrifices? He said, no, you've got it all wrong. I never made a sacrifice. That's right. It's our privilege 
to spend and be spent for Christ. Not only our privilege, but that's where our joy is. Psalm 16:11 says, at your right hand is pleasures forevermore. Now, 1 Peter 1, 8 and following says that, that true joy, inexpressible joy and filled with glory is in our relationship with Jesus. This is our joy. This is more than simply, though, giving a mental nod to certain doctrines. This is allowing those doctrines to rule and govern and own our lives. If you, for example, agree that there is life after death, if that is a doctrine that, that you give mental assent to, then enthusiastically live for eternity. Hold loosely the things of this world and store up treasure in heaven. If you agree that, that you were created to give God glory, then live to God's glory today. Stop living for the praise of men. Stop living to promote your own brand and to build, build your own fame and live for Christ's glory and his fame and his praise. If you believe that Christ has forgiven you, then go and proclaim that wonder as you forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, Colossians 3.13 says, so you also must, must forgive. You have to forgive. If you call yourself a Christian, you have to forgive. And if you agree that God is love, then zealously love Christ. Zealously uh, love your brothers and sisters in Christ and zealously love the saints. Brothers and sisters, love Jesus. Love him zealously. Love him passionately. Love him supremely, which is to say there's no other way to love Christ it doesn't make sense to, eh, I'm going to love Jesus. That's not the kind of love that we're talking about when we're talking about love for Christ. Remember his astounding grace and his amazing kindness towards you. Never take his forgiveness for granted. Never assume it was owed you. And so surrender your heart and your soul and your mind to his great cause. Love him with all of your existence. That's what that phrase is getting at. Love him with everything that is at your disposal your education, your mind, your skills, your giftings, your resources. Follow Christ. And that's our joy. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, we, we, we've had a bit of a rough year as a church as we look back at it. One year almost to the date. Now, we're not a perfect church. We're certainly not perfect elders. But we're a forgiven church. And we're forgiven elders. And Christ hasn't changed this last year. He is the same yesterday and today as he is forever. He is that worthy. And so now's not the time to sort of slow down and, and, and lick our wounds and back off on our zeal. Now's the time to fan into flame a red-hot passion for our king. J.C. Ryle wrote, never allow yourself to think that you can do too much, that you can spend and be spent <clears throat> too much for Christ's cause. For one man that does too much, I'll show you a thousand who do not do enough. Rather, think that the night cometh when no man can work and give, collect, teach, visit, work, pray as if you were doing it for the last time. <clears throat> Lay to heart the words that noble Jansenist who said when told that he ought to rest a little. What should I rest for? Have we not all eternity to rest in? Fear not the reproach of men. Faint not because you are sometimes abused. Heed it not if you are sometimes called bigot, enthusiast, fanatic, man-man, and fool. There is nothing disgraceful in these titles. Care not for the praise or frown of men. 
There is but one thing worth caring for, and that is the praise of God. Love Jesus. Follow him zealously to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is our desire. We certainly need your help in doing this. I pray, Lord, that our relationships here as a body would work towards encouraging each of us toward that end, that we would not be complacent in our service to you, but that our lives would be a loving, joyful response to all that you have accomplished for us in and through Christ. Help us not to dwell on the past, but to look forward, hearts full of love, easily forgiving, easily granting and extending grace and mercy to to those who sin against us because we see so clearly how we've sinned against you and we're so overwhelmed with your kindness. So Lord, I pray that you would rekindle in our hearts here this morning uh, a fresh understanding of the gospel, a fresh desire to know you, to glory in the realities of who you are, your attributes, who Jesus is, and the Spirit, and that our lives would would accurately proclaim to a lost and dying world that, that Christ is that valuable. And Lord, we do pray for those who, who are rejecting you, that their hearts would hear this gospel message and that you would grant them repentance. And Lord, we ask this for your glory and our extreme joy. Amen.